0: Welcome to the Elevate Life podcast channel, a channel focused on helping you establish a biblical philosophy of life that will empower you to reach your full God-given potential. For more information about our church, visit elevate.life. Enjoy this episode. I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Elevate Life, and, you know, my dreams are also coming true. I'm a video game character. It's amazing. (laughs) It's not about me, though, but your dreams can come true, too, whatever you dream. Hey, uh, I want to invite you to stand if you're not standing, because we start this part in the service by saying some things about us that God says about us. So put your hand on your heart with me, and the words will be on the screen. Say it with me. I declare that I'm created in the image of God. I am blessed to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and take dominion. I declare that 2022 is my year of promise for me, my family, my finances, and my future. I declare, according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen. Yes and amen. Today I open up my mind to receive the promises of God so I can think like God, be like God, and do life the way God intended for me to live. Now put your hands up, say like you mean it. Come, Holy Spirit, help me elevate my thinking so I can elevate my life in Jesus' name, amen. Give yourselves a big hand, give God a big hand. You can be seated, really glad that you're here, and uh, we've been in this series called Game On, and uh, we're talking about biblical worldview, and worldview is something that a lot of us don't necessarily consider or think about, and uh, we've got another couple weeks left, and so we're on level three. Some of you, this might be your first week here, or maybe you're just kind of catching up to where we're at, and so sometimes in a video game, uh, you get cheat codes, and you get to skip levels that other people skip. I encourage you to go back and you can watch some of the, the messages because every message is, has built on top of the one before it. But I want to take a second and give you uh, some perspective on worldview. Because our worldview is something that we don't often consider. It's not something that we often think about is the way that we see the world. But it's, it might be the most important thing that we have uh, is our worldview. And so there's a lot of notes, there's a lot of information that I'm gonna give you today. Uh, there's some scriptures I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to necessarily read the whole thing. But what you can do is you can text notes to our number, 972-945-9772. And also notes are in our app. It's on our live page. They're in the YouVersion app. We try to make it really easy to get notes because uh, some of what I'm talking about uh, might be something, some stuff you, you would like to chew on. And so we're, we're, I'm going to give you some cheat codes as we start to just help you catch up to the importance of worldview, why we're even talking about this. And uh, the, the thing is, the first thing we have to understand is that everyone has a worldview, right? So worldview is a story that we tell ourselves about the world. All of us are always telling ourselves about telling ourselves stories of, about the world, about other people, about their intentions, about why things are happening to us, about the reasons why the world is the way that it is. And our worldview is the basis for every thought, every attitude, and every action that we have. So everything that we do, the genesis of that, is our worldview, the story that we tell ourselves about the world. So if, if our worldview is incorrect, then all of my thoughts, all of my attitudes, and even all of my actions are misguided and even wrong. Now, I know we don't want to hear uh, in church necessarily about how wrong we are, but in our life, if our worldview, if the story that I tell myself about the world is not accurate, or right, then I can be misguided in the way that I live my life. And for many people, they can't can't examine, they can't design, and they can't even communicate their worldview. So if a person can't do that, then not only are they misguided, they're incapable of misunderstanding why they believe what they believe. Um, You'll also be incapable, if you can't design your worldview, if you can't communicate your worldview, if you don't even know what your worldview is, you're also incapable of understanding why you act the way that you act. The only justification, if we don't consider our worldview, for our thoughts, attitudes, and actions, is our opinions and feelings. Why did you do that? I just felt like doing it. Why do you think that way? Well, it's just how I think about it. Those around us, if this is how we live, will always be in the dark concerning our underlying beliefs and intentions. And sadly, we also would be, will be incapable of understanding our own beliefs and intentions. For a lot of us, there's things that we do that we don't even know why we do them. That's why it's important for us to consider our worldview. Both, both me and the people around me, if I don't consider my worldview and, our, and have the ability to articulate it, then I'm forced to guess, and everybody else, I'm forced to guess, a lot of times wrongly, the true meaning of what I say and the purpose behind what I do. So if I'm not intentional about my worldview and if you're not intentional about your worldview and its application to your life, then you will live at the mercy of your emotions, opinions, and impulses. You'll be inclined to follow the crowd and conform to social and cultural norms and patterns of thought and behavior regardless of their merit. This is the world that we live in. So some of us look at the world and we're like, how are people going along with this? Right? Whatever the this is that exists. The reason why is because most people do not consider the story that they tell themselves about the world. And that's what worldviews do. There's as many different worldviews as there are people. And so there's certain components to our worldview that we have to consider. But I wanna implore you and challenge you to think today. There's a lot of, there's a lot of times in church where we're gonna feel some things, the Holy Ghost is gonna show up, it's gonna be powerful. And there's some times where uh, it's time for us to use our brains because God gave you one. And so what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about axiology. Now, axiology seems like this, again, it seems like this $10 word. I didn't come up with this word. People that are academics that love to make you realize how smart they are come up with words like this all the time to describe very simple things. I don't know why that exists. It's like, we're going to give you this word. This word describes something simple, but the word itself is complicated. Axiology, it comes from the Greek word axios, which just means worthy. So what is axiology? Axiology is our beliefs about good and bad, right and wrong, and ultimately how values and virtues express themselves in our lives. So the question of axiology, right, which is what we're talking about today, is what motivates us to to take action and what motivates us to not take action. Or as our children ask, a better question, if you you want a little more simple approach, is as our children put it, why? I have a four-year-old, her name's Charlie. I have a two-year-old named Harper. She's not really... She's a little bit more animalistic still in her communication. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, But Charlie loves to ask why, just like any young child does. Why should I wear pants? Why do I have to put socks on? Why do I have to go to school? Why do you have to go to work? Why is that car going faster than us? (laughs) Why is dirt so dirty? Why can't we have ice cream for breakfast? Why is Main Street called Main Street, right? It's the Main Street. What does that mean? It's just the Main Street, that's so why it's called Main Street. Why do you keep asking me about Main Street? <laughs> so axiology is, is, is really a question of why. Why do you do what you do? Why do you not do what you do? So why does this matter? Why is this, why is this so important? Two things, virtually all elements of your worldview relate directly to your axiology, relates directly to your conception of good and bad, And your axiology is the cause for all your behavior. 100% of the reasons why you do what you do come back to your definitions of good and bad or good and evil. So it's the foundation. Your approach to good and evil in a binary sense is the foundation for all your thoughts, attitudes, and actions. Every thought you ever think, every action you ever take has its root in what you decide is good and bad or right and wrong. A lot of us, we have this perspective. So, so we have this perspective on life and people that says that there are some people out there who are just absolutely evil and they're always trying to do the wrong thing. That's not the way human beings work. The way human beings work, believe it or not, I know this is hard to believe, the way human beings work is the things that they do, they do those things because they think that those things are good and they think that those things are right. Now who those things are good for and right for is the question, right? Right? But a person does the things that they do ultimately because they do that in service to some good as they define it. And a lot of times in life, we go through difficult times, we go through difficult seasons of our life or difficult uh, dynamics in relationship, or maybe you've been fired from a job before. Any, any job you've ever been fired from, fired from before, that, those people are now your enemy. At one point, you wanted to work there. Like No one required you to work there. And then you got fired from there, and now they all hate you and you hate them too. Because they didn't do what you felt was in your best interest. It wasn't good for you to get fired. It's not good for any of us to get fired. But if you're the boss in that situation, it was good for you to fire this person for whatever the reasons were. We go through life, we have relationships that get destroyed, we have maybe marriages that don't work out, and so, or, or we have a, uh, an unhealthy dynamic with our parents. And so then we go, well, my dad is my arch nemesis in life and he's the villain, and I'm the good guy. Right, Because what we're doing, we would define as good, and what they're doing, they would define as good too, but we would define that as evil. That's a little bit of what axiology is all about. So it's important for us as we shape our worldview to understand how we approach these things that are good and bad. Every decision that you make, every thought that you think is something, intentionally, is something that you think is good on some level. The stuff that you and I do every day, these are all things that on some level, those things are, in our mind, good for us. So as a church, we did a survey. A lot of you know this, but we did a survey we talked about. we We had a couple questions attached to axiology, and I want us to make our way through those things. So the first question is, where do good and evil come from? Now, Great news! This section of questions we got the most right, so we're passing today. This is we got seventy percent of us that answered this the right way. You can give yourselves a big hand. Hey, C's C's get degrees. (laughs) It's true. Don't you know? I I know you don't want me to tell your kids that, but you graduate from Harvard. No one's gonna ask you how long it took for you to graduate. Twelve years? Did undergrad? Sure. What's your GPA? Well, we don't talk about that. 2.0, amazing, I made it, right? So 70%, that's winning, we're winning. So here's what we said. Where did good and evil come from? what we said was god through the bible and natural law defines what is good and what is evil so 10% of us said the bible and that's there's nothing wrong with that it's just the more the more accurate answer is through the bible and natural law you see a lot of people they don't understand that not every law that we live by not everything that we exist by is written in scripture the bible is not a rule book for our whole life that's not what it is it's not what it represents there's a lot of things that the Bible represents, but there's a such thing philosophically as natural law. And a lot of people that are maybe uneducated think that the only people that are moral are people that believe in a higher power. They believe in God. That's That's not really true. Atheists and theists, people that don't believe in God, people that do believe in God, they have this debate all the time because there's a such thing as base morality. So Before the the Code of Hammurabi was written, which is older than the Bible, before uh, any law was written down, human beings have known that murder is a bad idea. That murder was not a good thing to do to somebody else. Right? That's not because God wrote it in scripture, then oh wow, we were just out here murdering each other, and then you wrote it down, it's like oh, well now we know that murdering is not a good idea. So there are some things that are what's called natural law, that these, these are ways we have what's called base morality. One of the conclusions in a lot of circles that there's a God that created us is the fact that all of us on some level have, have some kind of approach to morality that's innate within us. And what we believe is that God established these things at, at the point of creation for us. So in the Bible, in Romans chapter one, which I'm gonna talk about in a little bit, but in Romans chapter one, the Bible talks about how even though people did not know God, they knew the law that God had applied to us. The book of Deuteronomy says God has written his law on our hearts. So it's not even about what's written in scripture. There's certain things that we know are good and that we know are bad, independent of our biblical knowledge. If the only way, uh, you know, if the only way that we could know what was good and bad would be based on the Bible, all of us would be in a whole lot of trouble because none of us know the Bible. The politicians that write the laws don't know the Bible, believe it or not, You, you and I don't know the Bible as good as we would like to claim that we do. For most of us, we have a Bible that's been sitting on our shelf since the day we got married, so if your only concept of good and bad comes from Scripture and you never read Scripture, then you're incapable of good, logically, right? So I'm not sitting here up here arguing. I don't feel like I'm arguing with anybody, but natural law exists. There's a base morality that we that we operate based on. So then, question 9. Are good and evil absolute or subjective? We still got to see here, but hey, we're winning, right? 28% of us said that good is subjective. 70 or whatever that is. 72% of us said that uh, good is absolute. Now, here's the thing about you know, almost a third of our church believes that good and therefore truth is subjective. Um, so the answer says, this is the, kind of the definition of subjective good, good and evil are relative to a person's assessments, cultural knowledge, society's progress, and other factors. What is fundamentally good and evil changes over time. 28% of us as a church believe this. Now here's the thing about subjective good. Okay, The thing about subjective good is that if you believe that good and evil are subjective, then you cannot ever worry about how anyone else sees good and evil. Why is that? Because there's no such thing as a universal standard to measure goodness or badness by. You define that for yourself. So uh, if good and evil are subjective, and I'll explain this in just a second, but if good and evil are subjective, you and other people have no moral obligation at any point to act a certain way. You're free to choose or ignore any standards you create for yourself or adopt from society. If you believe that you are good according to your standards, there's nobody else who can judge your actions if you believe in subjective good. Now here's the the, the reason why subjective good logically cannot exist. For us to make a statement that absolute truth does not exist, that in and of itself constitutes absolute truth, right? So for me to say something doesn't exist ever at any point, what I'm doing is I'm asserting something that's absolutely true. So for me to say that subjective truth is the only truth that exists, that I'm making an absolutely true statement that truth doesn't exist. If I say that absolute good does not exist, what I'm saying is that absolutely it does not exist. Now here's the problem with subjective truth. Here's ultimately the problem with subjective truth or subjective good, is that if you believe in subjective good, the only good you believe in is what's good for you personally. And you cannot take this good and apply it to society because it's not the universal standard, it's just your personal opinion. So culturally, we, there are people that believe that certain things are good based on their, their opinion. So they say, well, it's good that there's a spectrum of whatever. They say, well, it's good that, um, so one of the worldviews in, in um, uh, the world that we live in and culture that we live in is a cultural th- or critical theory, which is rooted in Marxism, which says that all of the world is divided into two groups, oppressed and oppressors. And so because of this, you're either one or the other. You're, you can't be in between. You're either one or the other. All right? So oppressors are absolutely evil and bad all the time. People that are oppressed, no matter what their individual merits are, they're absolutely good all of the time. They're incapable of bad things. Now, you can read about critical theory. There's a lot of information and reading out there about that. But that's, that's what the belief system is. That's what the worldview is. Now, here's the problem with that is that if a person subscribes to this worldview and they believe that truth is subjective, which critical theory is what's called a postmodern ideology, which postmodernism, one of the things about postmodernism philosophically is that postmodernism asserts the fact that there's no absolute truth. So if you say there's no absolute truth and you say that all of the world is divided up into oppressed and oppressors, you're the only person that that can ever apply to. Why? Because if subjective truth exists, if subjective good exists, then I cannot ever say that what someone else does is good or bad. I can't do it. Why? Because it's my own personal standard of measurement only for myself. What is true for me does not have to be true for another person if I believe in subjective good. So if I say to myself that all of the world is oppressive towards me, that is only true for me. If I say to myself that all of the world is oppressive toward my group, if I say to myself that all of one group of people is this way, I can't make everybody else believe that. I'm the only one that can believe that. But even people that say that there's subjective good and that good is only subjective and that truth is only subjective, really, really, really need you to believe that their truth is the truth. So even in asserting this idea that truth is subjective, what you're saying is I need you to agree with me that it's absolutely true that truth is subjective. I need you to agree with me that it's absolutely true that good and bad are based on subjective factors in culture and society and none of us can truly know what's good or bad. So what we should do is just what's good for us. That's a very confusing line of logic if you follow it to the end. Now most people that subscribe to this thought process don't follow it to the end, they just like the idea that they get to decide what's true for them and nobody else can. But the converse is also true, in that if you get to define for you what's good for you, and there's nobody that can tell you otherwise, then what that means is you can't define for anybody else what's good for them, and and you can't tell them otherwise. So if a person doesn't wanna subscribe to the fact that there's all these different genders, you just need to stop talking about it because they're not gonna accept your truth. Now, the problem is that's not really the way that people operate that buy into subjective good and evil. What people that buy into subjective good and evil want is for you to take their subjective idea and make that absolute for you. Now, they don't realize that. We don't realize that because subjective good is comfortable Subjective good says, you hurt my feelings, therefore it is absolutely true that you intended to hurt my feelings and you're evil and I get to define you as evil. That's how subjective good works. Absolute good is different. So if good and evil are absolute, then we always have a moral obligation to act according to an absolute standard that we did not define. And our thoughts attitudes, and actions must align with those standards. 72% of us believe in that. 72% of us believe that there is an absolute standard that we should all hold ourselves to, that we should hold each other to. 28% of us as a church don't really like that idea. And I get that, it's very human. So what people do, here's here's a conversation that people have, is they don't like the fact that in their perspective, Christians try to impose their morality on society because they believe in subjective good. So what's a person who doesn't want an imposition says, look, just because something's good for you doesn't mean it's good for me. But if we believe in absolute good, what that means is we have a requirement to impose the standard on the world that we live in because there is an absolute standard for goodness that we did not define for ourselves, but we get to hold people to that standard. That's the way that absolute good works. Now that's not super popular, and that's not what maybe the world wants us to do, and that might be seen as moralizing and all of that different stuff, and that's completely understandable, but we don't believe, if if you have a biblical worldview, we don't believe in subjective good. We believe in absolute good, and absolute good, means this. So here's what absolute good and bad mean. So if something is absolutely good, if we believe that good is absolute, then what that means is that it's good if and only if it is good independent of circumstance. There is no situation in which this thing is not good. It is always good, all the time, 24/7. It never stops being good. And then if we say something is absolutely bad, if we believe in absolute bad, what we say is that thing is bad if and only if it is always bad, independent of circumstance. It doesn't matter what situation that we're in, what, what, what place we find ourselves in, something that is bad is always bad. And then we have indifferent. We have the things that are in the middle. Something is indifferent if and only if its benefit or harm is based on circumstances. Let me, let me walk you through how this works. So one of the questions is, is pain good or bad? It's relative. Uh... The pain of getting your arm cut off is not so great. It's probably not good. The pain of like running a mile or exercising or the pain of some kind of discipline in your life is a good pain. So pain is not absolutely good and pain is not absolutely bad. Some of us live our lives as if it is. So we live life of trying to avoid all kinds of pain when really what we should do is determine whether or not the pain is good and the pain is bad for ourselves. Is pleasure good or evil? Well, at certain times, feeling good and, and enjoying things, that's a part of life. God created us to enjoy life. So pleasure can be a good thing. Pleasure can also be a bad thing. Like if you eat a half gallon of ice cream every day because it makes you feel good. It's probably not a good thing, right? Pleasure is neither good or, or evil. It's indifferent. Is money good or evil? And this is where a lot of your poverty mentality needs to go away. <laughs> because what, we, what, what some of us grew up with is this idea that money is evil. Rich people are evil. Money is always bad all the time, so we should always just be poor. But money can improve a person's life. It can alleviate suffering and poverty. And then the more money that we accumulate, ideally, the more we can be charitable and helpful to other people. But money, we've also seen in life that money can harm us and money can harm other people. Many people with money feel pressured to maintain their wealth at the expense of other aspects of their life. And wealth oftentimes seems seems to attract uh, greed and selfishness. It's also common, right, for us to hear stories about people winning the lottery, and then a year or a few years later, they don't have any friends, they don't have any family, and their life is worse than it was before they won the lottery. So money can be good, money can be bad, but money is a tool. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, not money itself. But for some of us, we grew up in Christian contexts where having money was an evil thing. Let me tell you how to change the world. You gotta have resources to change the world. What a lot of us wanna do is we wanna sit back be poor, criticize rich people for all the things they're not doing, while we have no means to do that because we don't, we don't pursue gaining more resources in our life. That's not the way God wants us to live. You know, God actually wants you to make an impact on the world. Your time is a resource. The money that you have is a resource. The things that God has put in your hand are resources. That doesn't mean that maybe all of us could or should be billionaires. That's not what it's about. It's about this idea that money is not bad and money is not good. Money is what you do with it. Money is a tool. I can take a hammer in my hand and I can build a house with it I can beat someone's skull in. That's up to me. 100% my choice. So just because at some point in our life, there was a person who had money that was not moral does not mean that everybody who has money is in some way immoral. That's just how this person decided to utilize the tool. So is sickness good or evil? Now, most of us would probably say, well, being sick is a really bad thing. It's really evil. If you're anything like, like Courtney, my wife, she's, her number, her only real fear in life, and some of you were here for staycation where she just faced down a bear, so I've seen this in person. Her, her only real fear in life is throwing up, is vomit. Her kid's throwing up, her throwing up. I'm like, man, that's, what a crazy, I, I mean, I kind of enjoy it. I'm not like a sadist, <laughs> but if I'm working out or if I'm running, I'm the guy that if I feel sick, I'm gonna go on a run just so I can get it all out, right? Some of you are like, oh, man, what's wrong with him? I don't know. Just pray for me. <laughs> so well, a lot of times we can see sickness as bad. But what if a person being sick when they were a child inspired them to become a doctor and help other people? We wouldn't then say, oh, so bad that that person was sick. We'd say, well, that was the catapult into their, into their greatness. So what is actually good? So the only, what we need to ascertain, okay, again, if good is good all the time, it can only be good. It can never be bad. It can, good, good cannot be, if we believe in absolute good, good cannot be circumstantial. It can't be based on the circumstance. So money is circumstantial, For a lot of reasons, sickness is circumstantial, pain and pleasure and all these different things are circumstantial. The only things that are not circumstantial, the only things that are good and they're good all the time, no matter what, no matter what place we live, no matter what era that we're born into, no matter what situation that we find ourselves in, the only things that are good in our life are principles and virtues. So what's a principle? A principle is the truth that I live by from scripture. We talked about this last week, but the Bible represents for us absolute truth. So when I take, there's a lot I I can't know about life, but when I take scripture and I apply it to my life, what I begin to do is I begin to operate according to absolute truth and absolute good. If you do things God's way, there is a 100% success rate. So many of us know this, right? The only thing The only thing that you can do that is absolutely good all the time is operate according to scripture, operate according to the word of God. Everything else is opinion, everything else is indifferent. Then the second thing is virtues or core values. Virtues are what matters most in our life based on the principles we decide to apply to our life. We call these things core values. I like to call them virtues. Because core values sounds like really corporate. It sounds like another word like synergy. We're just going to throw this word away in our culture and put it up on the wall. That's not what core values are. Core values and virtues are things that we do, ways that we decide to operate based on the truths from Scripture we want to apply to, my, apply to our lives. So the only things, again, I want to say this in, again intentionally. The only things that can be truly good in our life are good all the time. The only things that can be bad all the time are bad all the time, or only things that can be bad in our life are bad all the time. Things that are only good or evil based on our circumstances are not truly good or evil. So what's the only good? The only good for us, real simple, but not easy to do, is a life of virtue. That's the only good. So here's a question. What matters more, what you have or who you are? A lot of us would say, hey, who I am matters more. That's a great answer. What do you spend most of your life doing? If what you have matters more, then what we do is about having more. More money, more influence, more fulfillment, more success. I need to be in my best and highest use. I need to be doing the things I'm called to do. I need to do this. I need to have this. I need to experience this. I need to buy these clothes. I need to go to this place on vacation. I need to have all these things in my life. No matter what we say, if we say, hey, what I have matters more, that it doesn't, we're not talking about who we are. Living a life of virtue is not about what you have, it's about who you are. But we don't live life that way. We live life and we think that if we accumulate enough stuff and if certain things go a certain way, then we're having a good life. Man, my life is so good, I bought a million dollar home. My life is so good, I have a boat. My life is so great, I paid off my car. My life is so great, I was able to buy these clothes. None of that is a good life. All of those things are circumstantial and subjective. All of those things. The house you live in, it's neither good or bad. I I hate owning a house. You know why? Because i got to fix all this stuff. No one's coming to help me. I don't have a maintenance man that I can just call up, swing through, fix my oven. i got to figure out what it's going to cost, how I'm going to pay for it. Oh, my goodness, there's a leak over there. There's this stuff in my yard. The HOA is writing me up. I mean, there's a lot of bad things that come with owning a house. So we can say, wow, if I can accumulate stuff, my life is good. That is not everybody that we've heard that feels like their life has not been successful, does not make it about the stuff that they didn't have. But we live our life and we go, man, if I can just accumulate some stuff. If who we are matters more though, which it does to God, then what we do is about living a life of virtue. This is called living a core values-based life. The truth is, no matter what position or place that you and I find ourselves in, rich or poor, sick or health, whatever, we're always in a position to live a good life and do the right thing. Why? Because we can act virtuously according to biblical principles. No matter what Job you have, no matter what your relationship status is, no matter what your bank account looks like, no matter what kind of car you drove to church today, you can live a good life because you can operate and live your life according to biblical principles and biblical virtues. But most of us do not consider this and we don't give ourselves the power to do this. Why? Because being a victim is fun. Being a victim means I don't have to take responsibility for any of this stuff. And I can be a victim to myself. I can victimize myself. You know how you victimize yourself? You do the stuff that like silly parents do and they, go, they, they, they mistreat their children and then they tell their children that they had to mistreat their children based on how their children were acting. So you were acting this way and as your parent that made me act this way. That's ridiculous. <laughs> You're not the leader, your kids are the leader. You yelled at me, so I yelled at you back. I had to yell at you. What? You didn't have to do anything. You're in control of yourself 24-7. Well, I don't want to control myself because then if I control myself, I have to take responsibility for my actions, and that's really hard to do, so I'd rather just be victimized by every situation I find myself in. This person yelled at me, this person mistreated me, this happened, and so that made me go be this way that I knew was not a way that I should be, but honestly, it wasn't about me knowing I should or shouldn't be that way, it was about me justifying my actions based on an external thing that I couldn't control. That's how most of us live, by default, Christian or not. We live life and we don't do things that are good. We don't do things that are biblical. We don't do things that are virtuous because we got all these excuses and all these reasons. Well, this is what my dad did to me when I was a kid. And this is what my ex did. And this is what my kids do. And this is what that person said. And this is what my boss is like. And you don't understand and you don't know. and you don't, All that stuff is useless talk. It's a waste of time because it doesn't matter. What matters is that in any situation or circumstance you and I are in, we can do the right thing because no one can stop us from living by virtue. No one can stop you from applying biblical principles to your life. If you decide to forgive somebody, no one can stop you from forgiving somebody. If you decide to let go of your anger, no one can stop you from doing that. If you decide to have a positive attitude, there's not anything that anybody can do about it. When I was a little kid, or not a little kid, but when I was a kid, Whitney runs into my dad's office one time, and she says, she goes, she tells my dad, she goes, Josh hurt my feelings. And I'd said something that hurt her feelings, you know, which I often do, probably like you're feeling today. Sorry if I'm hurting your feelings. (laughs) She runs into my dad's office, and she says, Josh hurt my feelings. And he looks at her, and he goes, did you give him permission to hurt your feelings? She's like... No. Well, go tell him that. So she comes back in the room, wherever I am, I'm at, and she goes, hey, I didn't give you permission to hurt my feelings. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> That's how easy it is to not get your feelings hurt. You don't have permission to offend me. I'm not going to be offended at this. Now, we don't like that. Because that requires me to do something, take responsibility for myself, which I'd rather this situation take responsibility for me. I'd rather blame it on you that, you know what, you're just an offensive person and you're just mean and you're mean to everybody around you and I'm just the next victim on your list. It's like you're only a victim if you choose to be a victim, man. So you can live your life, be that way. You don't, you don't, man, you don't know what I've been through. You know, God knows what you've been through. He still asks you to live by his word anyway. It doesn't matter what I know about you. It matters what God knows about you. And God's still saying, hey, I want you to live according to scripture. It's like, well, God, you know what would be good for me would be if I was just around people who didn't hurt my feelings all the time. And I think God's like, you know what would be good for you? If you just got over yourself and quit making it about you. <laughs> oh, so... What's the only evil then? I kind of alluded to it. The only evil is called a life of sin. Oh, sin. Grow up in church. Grow up in the South. Grow up in the part of this world that we grew up in. It's like, oh man, don't call me a sinner. I'm not a sinner, brother, but I just make mistakes. You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to work through my life. Don't call me a sinner. <laughs> what do you call a mistake that you make on purpose? I don't know. Maybe you're just a mistaker. Right? So sin, so we, this, this word sin carries so much weight for us. It's like, oh man, like my sin, I guess God's gonna send me to hell like immediately. That's, that's not how it works. When the Bible talks about sin, this word sin is, a, is an archery term, right? Many of you have heard this. It means there's a target, there's a bullseye. You're trying to hit the target and you miss the target. You just didn't hit what you were aiming for. So sin is just missing the mark. And all of us sin every day, all the time, in every relationship. Why? Because that's just how we are as human beings. This is ultimately why we need God. So sin means I did not intend to offend you, but in some way I offended you. Sin means I did not intend to create this misunderstanding between us, but I created a misunderstanding between us. Those of you who have been married understand what it's like to sin every day because you fight with your spouse about your sins, about how you have missed the mark with them, about how you don't make them feel loved, about how you don't communicate enough, about how you don't have a plan for anything, or you're not showing up on time for stuff. Maybe those are just mine. I don't know. (laughs) So we all are going to miss the mark in life. Now, here's the thing. If we do not seek to live a life of virtue, then we will miss the mark and we will live a bad and even evil life. I know none of us want to consider ourselves as capable of evil. I know none of us want to see ourselves as bad. But if you live a life where all you do is miss the mark, you have lived a bad life. And just because you're saved doesn't mean you're gonna live a good life. That's, that doesn't mean anything. Because one thing is about believing, the other thing is about acting. Those are two different things that we do. So here's the thing, I'm gonna give you a little like uh, sneak peek of next week. 58% of our church believes that people are fundamentally good. Bad news, you're fundamentally evil. I'm not saying that to offend you. I'm just saying biblical worldview says you and I are incapable of good, actually. We have a nature within us that is sinful. Our default way of operating is missing the mark. We're focused on ourselves. What we're often focused on is how things affect me, not how what I'm doing is affecting other things. That's sinful. It's missing the mark because you're not thinking about what you're aiming for. The way we naturally live is God set a bullseye up there. You're in a shooting range. God's like, hey, I need you to aim for the target. And you're turning around and shooting everybody else in the shooting range. (laughs) I didn't mean to do that. Well, I know you didn't mean to do that, but that was really the worst idea. So to miss the mark, to sin just means to not hit what you're aiming for. None of us are aiming to be hurtful to people. None of us are aiming to live a bad life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying there's anybody in here, anybody that can hear this, that's that's got some kind of motive for destruction. But by default, the way that we are built is to miss the mark. This is why we need God. This is why we need to understand what is absolutely good. Because if I know that I'm fundamentally incapable of hitting the target, then what that means is that I can work with God to get better at hitting the target, that God can actually help me hit the target. But if I don't embrace this idea that I'm kind of incapable of goodness without God, then I'm gonna harm myself and people around me with bad thoughts, bad attitudes, and bad actions regardless of what my belief system is. If I do not live a life of virtue, if I do not live a life according to principle, then what I do is I perpetuate evil, I perpetuate badness, I perpetuate sin. Some of you today, you treat your kids the same way that your parents treated you because you've never dealt with the mistake that that is. Right? Some of us, we live our life and we have these things that we kinda continue to carry and continue to live in because that's how it was before. So I guess that's just how it works. And to do that is sin. It's just missing the mark. So what we have to do is decide, well, I don't wanna miss the mark anymore. Because God is concerned, he's very concerned about what we do, but he's more concerned about who we are. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse two, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. But allow God to transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. God starts with the who that you are first. And then if he can get to who you are, he can change what you do. But if you never admit to yourself that who you are is sinful and evil, then what you have will never matter. So people have this this stuff in their life that they think, man, if I just accumulate enough money, like I said, I'll be successful. If I just get enough stuff, I'll be successful. If I have enough influence, then I'll prove it to everybody. And I'll prove it to myself that I'm not a failure. And on and on we could go, because it's all about what we have. And what, what, what immature people think is that what they have is who they are. That's, that's how God doesn't want us to think. God wants us to think who you are is what you live by. Who you are is what you do every day. And so the way to, uh, to good, The way to good in our life is a life of virtue. The way to evil is a life of sin, a life of missing the mark. There comes a time in our life where we need to stop stop apologizing and just start changing our behavior. So many people, right? I mean, there's people you and I deal with every day. They're continuing to apologize for the same stuff, but they don't change one thing. This is what we do with God, too, by the way. Like, God, I'm so sorry I did that again. Well, I'll do it again tomorrow and I'll just ask for forgiveness again. I'm not a sinner, though. I'm a mistaker. Just mark that down. <laughs> so what is the highest good? This is the last question that um, we asked as it relates to axiology. And uh, 92% of us got this right. That's what I'm talking about, church. <laughs> a biblical worldview right here. What's our highest good? To be connected to God and to be like Jesus. That's what We believe. And that's a wonderful thing to believe, and it's important in life uh, what it is that we believe. And some of you are are waiting for the other foot to drop, and so now's the time for me to drop the other foot. And uh, if we know what the highest good is and we don't do it, why does that happen? 92% of us know this. 92% of us know that the highest good is to be like Jesus, but so often in our lives we're not. And I'm not asking you to be honest with me, I'm asking you to be honest with yourself. If I'm honest with myself, every day there's stuff about me that's gossipy, that's negative, that's dramatic, that's all these different things. And so why don't I do the things that I know that I should do? Why don't I do the things that would make me like Jesus? Why don't I live a life of virtue? Why do I continue to sin? Why do I continue to miss the mark? You don't have to have this conversation with me or anybody else, but you and I definitely have this conversation with God. It's like, man, When am I going to be past this issue? Like, I want to be like Jesus. I want to to do these things, but it's so hard for me to do that. It's because of our relationship to good and bad. So in Romans chapter 1, you can read this for yourself. There's a list of sins that we do daily that aren't like Jesus. So some of us are familiar with these, and some of us are familiar with some of them. All of us do them. I'm not saying you do the same ones, but there's some kind of mix in here of all the sins that we commit. So idolaters, which means we put anything above God in our life, homosexuals, foolish people, people who don't make good decisions, a person who is foolish and doesn't make good decisions, they're a sinner, according to the Bible. Wicked people, a person who doesn't live according to a kingdom worldview, is a sinner. A sinner, a sinner (laughs) is a sinner. Wow, that's a, thanks God. That means if you make mistakes on purpose, you're not being like Jesus, Greedy people, people who think about themselves first. That's what a greedy person is. Hateful people, a person who thinks about or treats people badly on purpose. Envious, people who are jealous of other people's success. Murderous people, people who kill someone with premeditated malice. Hopefully none of you have have done that um, yet or, you know, at least you're out of jail now. So thanks for being here. (laughs) Quarreling people, people who stir up issues and strife. Deceptive people, people who lead others to false conclusions. Malicious people, people who intend to hurt other people. Gossipers, people who talk about people who are absent. Backstabbers, a person who pretends to be your friend but speaks against you. Haters of God. Insolent people, people who are arrogant and insulting. Proud people, people who think they're better than other people. Boastful people, people who celebrate their own wins. Sin inventors. Now I like this one because Paul's basically like maybe none of these caught you so if you come up with your own ways to sin you're still sinning. <laughs> People who find ways to make mistakes on purpose that aren't listed in this list. It's like and all these things listed and all the things not listed that I in some way did not mention. People that are disobedient to their parents. That neglect or refuse to obey, people that refuse to understand, people who are closed minded and stubborn are sinful, promise breakers, people who break their commitments to each other, heartless, unwilling or unable to love people, unmerciful, cruel, not willing or able to forgive. We do this stuff, all of us, me included. I mean, I just happen to be sitting on a stage right now, that doesn't mean anything. I'm, I'm just struggling with the same stuff as, as everybody because this is a part of being human. Like, God, I want to be like Jesus, but I can't. I don't know why I can't. It's just really hard for me. Many of us do these things. We do this list of sins not because we think that they're good, not because we think that that would make us like Jesus, but because we find them more convenient than the alternative. So gossip is more convenient than not trashing somebody behind their back. I like to talk bad about people. Makes me feel good about me. I'm like, this person is an idiot. They're annoying. They behave these ways. I would never do that. And I love to say that about other parents. (laughs) Nothing helps you be as critical and negative as ju- and judgmental as having your own children. Because then you start looking around at everybody else's way of parenting their kids. You're like, that person's an idiot. That guy doesn't know how to raise his son. That person's over here being that way. It's like, why? Are, what, what qualifies me? Nothing. I'm just really good at gossip. That's what qualifies me. I have a mouth that just runs. So we have, we have all this stuff in our life. It's, it's like we want it to be acceptable because it's convenient to us. Being unforgiving and angry is convenient, especially when that's kind of something that you struggle with. There's a lot of people that in their life, they're so angry, they don't even understand why they're angry, they're angry, and they're like, they find a way to talk about how their anger is in some way a good, positive thing. Because what they want is for how they are to be something that Jesus finds acceptable. Because it's convenient to them. And then here's what we say in a Christian context. We say, you know, God just cares about my heart. God knows my intentions. And so we live like our actions don't matter because God knows my heart. Yeah, I know I like totally cursed you out, but God knows my heart. Okay. I know I hit you across the face that one time, but you know, you know my heart in that, right? Not really. My face hurts, man. I know I treated you unfairly, but hey, that's not my heart. Oh, okay, well, let's just not talk about it then. No. God is concerned with who we are for sure, but he's also concerned with what we do. Both what we do and who we are really matter. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, what we do is we, we truthfully, we value what is convenient over what is good. So we allow what we, what we want to become acceptable to become good. But something that is acceptable is often not good. So this is what people do. They're like, well, you know, as long as I'm monogamous, that's basically like a marriage, right? No, that's not how God designed it. You can excuse your way around that. You can, you can think in your mind all these different ways about it, but that's not how God set things up. But but it's more convenient. It's more convenient for me to do it this way. It's like, well, God, you know, there was, I know that there was like $10,000 that got lost in this deal, and it's okay. No one's going to miss that. Well, I mean, eventually they will. God, it's just, you know, I'm just so tired of being married to this person and they're not going to change. So I feel like it's acceptable for me to divorce them, right? Mm. I can know something is bad and still choose to do it. I can, because I believe 72% of our church believes that there is an absolute standard of good and bad. 98% of our church says that the standard is the life of Jesus and is getting close to God, getting connected to God. We know that, but then why don't we do it? It's my axiology. It's how I think about good and bad and right and wrong. And it's not because we're not spiritual enough. Being spiritual is important. Believing in God is one of the most important things we can ever do. But it's because we don't think enough. We don't use our minds. We don't think about what we're doing. And we just kind of have this expectation, at least for me and the church cultures that I've grown up in, we have this expectation that God's just gonna take care of the rest of that because God knows our heart and things. And God absolutely does know your heart and people, people need to know your heart too. But also, they're gonna judge you by the fruit of your actions. So in the book of Romans, Paul talks about this. Paul says, some of you have read Romans chapter seven and eight and I encourage you to read them. They're, they're there in your notes. I'm not gonna redo the whole chapter, but Paul basically says, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I, I do the things that I don't want to do, and why is this? I constantly wrestle with this. This is something that we all wrestle with as people. It's like, man, I don't want to be that way, but I'm being that way again. Like, why can't I overcome this? Why can't I get past this? Paul talks about there's a war within us of our sin nature. There's sin within within us that is driving us to do things that we know that we shouldn't do, that we know are a bad idea, that we know we're not virtuous, but we're doing them anyway. And Paul says, what a wretched, miserable person that I am, that I continue to be this way. And he says it this way. He says, there's a war within my mind. This is not the war of your heart. This is not the war of your spirit. This is the war within your mind. Romans chapter 8 goes on to say this that if I think about sinful things, then those things lead to sin. If I think negative thoughts, I'm going to do negative things. That's what he's saying. If I think in a way that misses the mark, if I think in an inaccurate way, according to scripture, I will live a sinful life. I can be a Christian and still do that. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to go to heaven, that's not even what it's about. What it means is that on this side of eternity, I cause massive train wrecks wherever I go. And oh man, I got Jesus in my heart, so it's all good. I'm going to get out of here. Y'all are good. I messed this up, right? All right. That's how people live life. It's, it's, cra- it's the craziest thing to me growing up the way I grew up. It's like, well, you know, I know I'm like, I know I'm not doing anything right, but man, Jesus, you know my heart because I'm a Christian, right? It's like, Yes. But here's the thing, you gotta have a biblical worldview if you're gonna be like Jesus. You cannot live your life think just because you believe it, God's gonna do it all for you. Well, what about that song, Jesus Paid It All? I thought that meant I was just gonna automatically have a good attitude because I'm a Christian. Whew. Paul says our nature, our nature as people is sinful, and it's always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, it never will obey God's laws. That's why those who are under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. Paul's not talking to a bunch of unsaved, unchristian people. Paul's talking to those of us who claim to follow Jesus, who continue to live a life thinking that our sin is okay, and giving ourselves permission to continually miss the mark. And I'm not saying miss the mark like in some crazy, egregious way. I'm saying if you live your life and you justify your unforgiveness, you are letting your sinful nature control you. You are not pleasing God with your emotional approach to situations. If you live your life and you're critical and you're negative of things around you, you are not pleasing God with the way that you're deciding to live based on that. That's, that's not meant to be a condemnation or a criticism. The way out of sin is not more spiritual experiences. It's not more snotting and crying at the altar. We need to have those experiences with God, but we also need to give our thinking over to him. And there's things about our life that we're refusing to give to God because it's just convenient for me to be this way. And I want this to be acceptable. God, my anger drives me forward and my desire to prove it to everybody is the reason why I've I've succeeded like I've succeeded. So God, what I need you to do is come into my life and agree with me about the way that I am because that's what I need from you. But what we have to, the place we have to get to with God is to admit that our way, the way that we think primarily does not work. This is what Paul is saying. Your defaults, what you think is acceptable, what makes you feel comfortable, what you think is good, all that's gotta go in the trash immediately. You've gotta let it go. And like I've said throughout this series, for us, the thing we struggle with is that a known bad outcome is better than an unknown outcome. Because we're living in chaos, and we think, that we're comfortable in the chaos. So I'm, you know, God, I'm just navigating my own chaos and I feel like this is okay. And God's like, man, I got such a better life for you than you can imagine, but you gotta do some things the way I want you to do them. And then we say this to God. We're four-year-olds, God, why? It's a conversation, because we know There's stuff right now in your life the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you on, but you're kind of afraid. If you stepped into it, you know, you gotta let some things go. Man, God, why do I gotta forgive? Why do I have to be the one? That's what we say. God, you know, why do I have to get married before I have sex? That don't make no sense to me. Why do I need to stay married? Why can't I be selfish? Why can't it be about me? Why can't I talk about people behind their back? can't I break a promise? Why can't I do whatever I want? Come to church. Why do I need to serve? They want me to serve on a team. I got stuff going on in my life. God, you know, you know, I love you, God. I don't need to do nothing for nobody. I'm good. Me and you are good, right? Yeah, I don't need the church. Why do I need to give? I don't need to give. All those people are going to take my money and give it to themselves anyway. Come with all kinds of reasons. Here's what God says. Same stuff we end up saying for our kid to our kids, because I said so. God starts with the Bible. If you wanna know why, read scripture. God will tell you why. God, why do I need to forgive? It's in my word. Why do I need to give? It's in my word. Why do I need to stop gossiping? It's in my word. Why do I need to let go of my anger? It's in my word. Sometimes God doesn't say why though. He gives us that same answer. I said so. When you talk to your kids and you say, because I say so, uh, sometimes that does end the conversation. <laughs> Not really, though. Just like us and God. God's like, hey, because I said so. Well, God, why? Yeah, because I said so. Well, why, God? Well, because I said so. Well, God, if I feel, like, I feel like if I ask you this question enough times, you'll give me a different answer. It's what your kids do. It's what you do. God's our father. We treat God like a kid. Our kids treat us like parents. There's two reasons why you accept because I said so. And there's two reasons why your kids accept because you said so. Number one, because they value your authority. They see you as an authority and they respect the authority that you have. The second thing, which is a worse option, is that they're scared of punishment. Some of us, we live this life and we're condemned right now, and we're so afraid of making mistakes. Because we feel like that if I don't do all the right things, God is going to destroy my life in some way or punish me. God doesn't want us to be scared of punishment. That's not how God works. God wants us to value his authority in our life and understand something. What does he want us to understand? Why we don't listen to his, because I said so. So so many of us in life, we ask this question, God, why do I have to forgive? Why do I have to do this stuff? Why do I have to follow your laws? Why do I have to be obedient to Jesus? Why do I got to fulfill the great commandment and love people? I don't want to love people. They're not love They're not worth loving for me. And then we ask God this other question. That's really interesting. God, why isn't my life working? God's like, well, I mean, i said a bunch of stuff for you to go do and you're not doing any of it. So what do you mean? Why isn't your life working? Why do I have to forgive? Well, God, why don't I have any relationships? Why don't I have any friends? You don't forgive anybody. No one wants to be around you. It's always their fault why you're upset. You live your life offended, that's why. What do you mean? You're doing things your own way. Why do you expect doing things your way to work in accordance with God's way? Those are like, I mean, two different roads going. Um, those are roads, I'm, I don't, I'm not flapping my wings. <laughs> Those are two different roads that are going two different directions. So it's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm heading to Canada. Man, I hope we hit Mexico soon. Go back all the way around, I guess in some way. But I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian. Yeah, man, but you probably don't have a biblical worldview though. So there's three elements of action. Why, what, and how? So we don't listen to, I wanna go back to this real quick though. Why don't we listen to God's Because I Said So? And I mentioned this a second ago, but two reasons why we wouldn't listen to God's Because I Said So. Number one, we don't have a biblical worldview. Number two, we don't apply our worldview. We know the Bible, we just don't do it. Now here's the thing we wrestle with. this is the kind of key thing for me today. Three elements of action. These are, these are three things that every time you do something, you consider. You might not realize that you consider these things, but these are, these are the three things you consider. Why you do something, what you're going to do, and how you're going to do it. So here's the thing in your life. If you decide to have a biblical worldview, you're going to let God say why. You're not going to ask why. You're going to be the kind of person that's like, God, I'm like your, like your kids. It's like, why do I have to put shoes on? Let's put your shoes on. I know why you gotta put shoes on, so just put them on for me, okay? Thank you. We're gonna go get donuts. Would that help you feel better? Yeah, okay, I'll put my shoes on right now. So sometimes God will tell you why. Sometimes it's like, just put your shoes on, right? Then, here's the, hard, the hardest thing for us though, is not why. We do ask why, but the hardest thing for us is not why, the hardest thing is what? You If you submit yourself to God, if you decide to have a biblical worldview and follow Jesus, you do not get to decide what you do. Hang on, that offends my American sensibilities. You're right. God's not about you being individual freedom, do whatever you want today. God says, here's my word. Here's what I want you to do. And what you get to decide is how you do that not whether or not you do. This is the wrestling that we have with sin. We don't see it. We see the what. We see God saying, here's what you have to do as an option. Like, well, God, I don't know if I want to do that. God's like, hey, buy-in's not optional. You said yes to me, so that means you you want the whole enchilada. Another food analogy for you. It's like like at work. Like some of you, you know, we have jobs. You've been a boss before. If you're a boss, you pay people to do what you tell them to do. You're coming to work for me. I'm going to tell you what to do, and you're going to get a salary or some kind of remuneration consistent with what you do. Now, here's what some people do at work. They go, well, I really feel like you're paying me to do what I want to do today. You're going to have fun at work if you do that. It's going to be amazing. You'll never have conflict. No one will ever be mad at you. That's not how it works. If you do not do what you're asked to do at work, you don't have that job. That's just how the world works. But then we go to God and we're like, God, you know, I just really need for you to be cool with how I do things. And I need you to make my way successful. Proverbs chapter three says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding In all your ways, acknowledge God and he'll direct your paths. That means do not take your eyes off of what God wants you to do. Don't stop doing that. Don't not do it for sure. If God says this is the way you have intimate relationships, that's the way you gotta have intimate relationships. If you claim to know Jesus, that's the way you gotta do it. There's not an alternative. There's not an explanation. There's not a debate. God's not into that. God's just like, here's why, here's what, now you decide how. So then we go to God and we're like, oh, I don't really want to give. I'm not about that. I just sure think selfishness should be cool. I think that God doesn't care about what I give. It's like, well, he does, but it's cool. You just want to do whatever you want. And then we go, oh, why isn't my life working? God, why aren't I living according to your plan for me? Why don't I feel like I'm in your will? This is what like Christians say, why don't I feel like I'm in your will? It's like, you're not doing what I want you to do. You are not doing my will. It's very hard to do God's will. It's not hard because it's hard to understand. It's hard because you have to submit to it. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the reason he sweat blood and said, not my will, but yours be done, is not because he didn't want to feel pain. It's because he didn't want to do what God was asking him to do. And he said, okay, God, I'll do it. that's what you want, I'll do it. It's very hard. This is transcending our humanity. There's a story that St. Augustine tells of him and his friends. And when St. Augustine was growing up, his his group of friends was called the Destructors. (laughs) Cool. I mean, it's not cool, but it is cool. What a name. What a name for a group of friends, the Destructors. That's what people called them. So one time they're walking through the, the place where they lived and they saw a neighbor's property. None of them owned the property. They didn't know who owned the property. And they saw a neighbor's property and on the property was a pear tree just full of pears. And him and his friends were like, They weren't hungry. They didn't want to eat the pears. They didn't want to do anything with the pears. They just went and they said, let's take all those pears off the tree. And they took all the pears off the tree and they went and fed them to a bunch of pigs. So Augustine, as he got older, he asked himself this question. Why did we steal those pears? Because you think about axiology. You think about every decision, everything that we do is something that we do because we think it's good for us. So, you know, if you steal a loaf of bread, it's usually because you're hungry. If you steal a pear off a tree, it's like, well, I want to eat a pear right now. They didn't even want that. They were just literally destroying this tree. So Augustine, as he got older, it didn't make sense to him why they would want to take all these pears. So there's things in our life that we're doing that we know are not good. We're enjoying the fact that we're doing them, but we're not really sure why we're doing it in the first place. So what was the good in taking the pears in this story? He concludes in his writing, he said, our real pleasure consisted in doing something that was forbidden, but why was that a pleasure to him? So for him, the good thing about it was we just enjoyed doing something that we weren't, we, that we weren't allowed to do. Augustine in his writing, he calls this pure sin. What pure sin is, is it's sin that enjoys the fact that it's sin. I'm doing something I know I shouldn't do, and I revel in the fact that I'm doing it. Now, none of us wanna admit that we're that way, but man, when we judge somebody, ooh, it feels good. I love criticizing people. I'm very critical as a person. I'm not sure if you've realized that. Very cynical. I enjoy my cynicism a whole lot. I enjoy how cynical I am. I like being able to, to be sarcastic about people and say mean things. I enjoy it just for the sake of it. It's not even about like whether or not I think it's good. All of us have stuff like that in our life. So his answer, why, like why do I feel this way about stealing pears for no good reason? Why do I feel this way about the stuff that I do that's there for no good reason? Here's what, here's what Augustine said. He said, in his mind, it's an imitation of God. So just like the Garden of Eden where God says to Adam and Eve, he says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because then you'll be like me. And the serpent goes to Eve and says, uh, you can be like God if you wanna be like God. This is the thing that we wrestle with. Augustine says it was, it was an attempt to exercise a freedom that belongs to God and God alone. Doing what you want, when you want, why you want. Augustine said to himself at, that, at the age that he was at, he said no one was gonna make rules for him to live by. If you want to get to the root of your sin, that's the problem. The problem is you don't want no one, God included, to tell you what you're going to do, when you're going to do it, and why you're going to do it. That's the problem. We think our definitions of uh, our definitions of good and bad should also be God's. God, this person hurt me. Smite them. That's a, that's a version of that. That person wounded me, so you should destroy them, God. This situation is happening, and here's what I need for you to agree with me on. So we live our life, you don't, you don't say to yourself, hey, I'm the God of every room I walk into, but man, we control the heck out of stuff. We look at our marriage, and we're like, we might not say to someone, hey, I'm your God, but we control every aspect of that person as if we are their God. We look at our kids, that's how we treat our kids. We go into work, that's how we are at work. Everything has to be perfect for me or I'm gonna just cause a ruckus in here. That's how we live life. We justify all our behavior and we say, here's all the things that I think I should do. Here's all the things that I'm justified in doing. And God, whatever, at the end of the day, what you say doesn't really matter, how I feel is what matters. So I say to myself, the highest good is to be connected to God and be like Jesus. But then I just excuse my way out of all that stuff because I'm a freaking sinner, man. I'm gonna miss the mark. There is a part of me that that really, if I'm honest, kind of controls me. And if I don't give that to God in my thinking, then I'm destined for evil. I'm destined for a bad life because I think to myself, well, you know what? I should be able to do what I want. And, and as long as I'm a Christian, that's going to be justified. It's possible. Like I've said throughout this series to be a Christian and not have a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview for the sake of good and bad means if God said something is bad, then it's bad. If God says something's good, then it's good. You and I don't debate that. If God says it's good to forgive, then it's always good to forgive. If God says it's good to have love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, if God says it's good to have all that stuff, then that's what I need to, that's what I need to do. That's how I need to operate. That's what I need to pursue. Those are the things that I need to think. The Bible spends so much time talking about our thinking. Think on these things, whatever thoughts are lovely, whatever thoughts are pure. That's what scripture says. Why is our worldview so important? It's the story that you're telling yourself about the world. If the story you tell yourself about the world is negative, mean, spiteful, either either the world's that way or you're that way towards the world, then what that means is that you're not thinking how God wants you to think. God has a great plan for your life. God has a great plan for everybody's life. God wants to use us to change the world. And we have to decide to see the world through his lens. We have to see good and bad through his lens. And then we have to get to the point in our life, and this is just maybe the most practical thing I could say to you today. We have to get to the point in our life where we just stop doing what we want to do. Just stop doing what you want to do. Stop thinking that it's okay, just because it's convenient, just because you want it to be acceptable. You don't even need me to tell you what's wrong. God's already convicting you. The Bible says that God convicts us. So just do what God says to do and watch what happens in your life. Just like with your kids. Look, because I said so, it's gotta be good enough for you at some point. So here's the opportunity. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word there that he used is this word metanoia, which means to change your thinking. What I have to change my thinking about is that I I know what's best for me. I don't know what's best for me. I know what I like. I know what I want. I don't know what's best for me. Only God knows what's best for me. We've gotta stop thinking that we should not be subject to the commands of God. And that's how we live. We justify it, we negotiate our way around it. We say, well, it's subjective. Here's what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like knocking on your door. I have a plan for your life. If you wanna experience my plan for your life, stop doing what you want to do and start doing what I want you to do. That's not an easy thing to do. It's a very easy thing to understand. If you struggle with, with anger, give God your anger. Don't let it be your driving force. Allow God to transform you from the inside out. He's faithful to do that. If you struggle with forgiveness, if you struggle with gossip, if you struggle with idolatry or slander or pride or whatever it is, go, God, I don't want to be this way. And as soon as we say that, God begins to work in our life. As soon as we decide, this is where we have to make a decision. As soon as we decide to think differently, we will think differently. As soon as we decide to think how God wants us to think, we will think, we will begin to think how God wants us to think. So what I want you to do is just bow your heads and close your eyes with me, because this is a repentance moment for you. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand if you struggle with all these different sins or have all these other issues in your life. But you know, you don't need me to tell you, you know what you have not given to God. You know the ways that you think, the things that you're justifying, the approach that you have, that is not the way that God wants you to be. So now is the time that I feel like God has ordained in this series and this service or whatever for us to metanoia, for us to change our thinking. Maybe your thinking has been that God's really mad at you and that you're condemned and that you know God's not a good God. The Bible says the goodness of God leads us to a place of repentance. The reason why you can change is not because God's gonna send you to hell if you don't, although that can happen. The reason why you can change is because you know God has a better plan for your life than you do. And maybe on the other side of whatever this issue is that you have, on the other side of whatever it is that you've been struggling with, is a whole new world with dazzling places you never knew. So everyone that can hear my voice, pray this prayer and repeat after me. Say, Dear Jesus, Thank you for loving me. Thank you that your ways are higher than my ways. From this moment forward, I give you my thinking, give you my attitude, and I give you my actions. I give you my life. In your name I pray, amen. When we do that, that's not just a one-time thing, it's a daily thing. Bible talks about renewing your mind every day is a renewing of your mind and I'm going to continue to talk about scripture talk about the importance of reading the Bible till the day that I die because the only thing that gets me on the same page with God is when I'm in the word it's the only thing whenever I'm pursuing him when I'm saying God I just you know a lot of preachers and you know they'll say a really cool thought and it's like allow your mind to be washed with the water of the word like when you, get in, when you get in scripture and you start reading it, the Holy Spirit begins to lead you and guide you and challenge you and convict you, but he does it in a loving way. He doesn't do it in a way that makes you feel like you're not enough. He does it in a way that says, hey, like, that's really cool, but what if it was way better? Like, oh yeah, God, I want that. So Pastor Keith says this, and this is where I'll land the plane on this part of our talk. People don't change till they hurt enough they have to, learn enough they want to, or receive enough they're able to. The most difficult way to change is through pain. A lot of people, that's the only way they change is when they experience enough pain. The second most difficult way to change is through learning, learning stuff. You can read a book, you could learn through other people's experiences. That's important, it's still a little bit painful. Here's the great, here's the way God wants us to change, to just receive enough that we're able to that we can sit down, we can look at God's word, God can deal with me, and then I just change. It can be that easy. I remember one time I was talking to Pastor Keith and he was correcting me about something, as is as usual. And um, I was so hurt by the correction and what I was navigating. He was like, son, what I need you to do, all I'm asking you to do is hear what I'm saying, walk out of this meeting and be different. It's that easy. You need to process through it. You don't need to be hurt by it. That's how God works with us. He wants us to receive. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our channel to be notified of our latest episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. That way, you know when a new episode has been uploaded. Also, if this message has impacted you and you want to contribute to help us reach more people, visit elevate.live forward slash give. We look forward to seeing you here next time.